Who in here is excited for Christmas? Anyone excited for Christmas? I said 13 days and some of you are anxious because you haven't gone Christmas shopping yet. But it's okay. You have 13 days to do so. Um, I, I personally, I love Christmas. But during Christmas, for some reason, I think I know why. But in our family, someone usually always ends up hurt. If you have kids, you might know what I mean by this. Uh, usually it's because they got some new toy or something different. And so someone gets hurt. I remember a couple years ago, my nephew, when he got a bike for the first time, on Christmas morning, as soon as he took his bike out, he fell and the handlebar went straight in his face. So every Christmas picture is a huge circle bruise on the side of his face from that Christmas morning. And so uh, if you're anything like me, you don't like pain. Like I have a very low pain tolerance. Um, Don't like pain. When I think about like the most pain I've been in, uh, it was when I did physical therapy for my knee. So I remember I, I had ACL surgery and I had to go get physical therapy done on my knee and you have surgery. And so I thought when you went to physical therapy, they help you. And I went to physical therapy literally right after surgery and they start bending my knee and I was literally crying. I was like, I don't like this physical therapist. Like I was so, like, I was so mad because I didn't understand the purpose of the pain. And when you end up getting in a position where you don't understand the person or the purpose of the pain, you start to doubt the person of the promise. See, this physical therapist, they, were, they promised me I was going to get better, but I didn't feel like I was getting better because it was painful. I felt like they don't know what they're doing. Surely this physical therapist is wrong. And so what I ended up doing is not listening to their exercise advice. I did skip a few appointments And in the end, it hindered me because even to this day, I still can't even fully bend my knee the way I'm supposed to because I didn't trust the person who was supposed to help me. I I, I doubted them because I was in pain. And when you can't see the purpose of the pain, you doubt the person of the promise. See, this is what happens with God. Every time we doubt God, every time we choose to not trust his ways, it will hinder us. Every time we choose to not trust what he's doing, it will hinder us. And I get it. I get it that it's hard, especially when it causes pain. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about pain and what do you do when you're in pain? What do you do when you're in suffering? I want to talk about the uninvited suffering and what happens when it's not invited in. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1. If you would just stand to your feet, it's a way to honor God's word. We're going through this genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his, and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zariah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Jesus, I pray even right now that you would help us to trust you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. We are talking about the mothers of Messiah. 
by looking at this genealogy listed in Matthew. If you're anything like me, it's very tempting to skip over the genealogies, uh, especially in the Old Testament. I think it's like First Chronicles. You see all of these names. It's like, oh, sweet, read that one really fast today, because it just it doesn't usually make sense to you. But Matthew knew what he was doing when he even put the genealogy in here. He was immediately connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. And every time you see a genealogy, it's offering some type of information to readers. Now, what's going to stick out to readers when they read this genealogy is for women specifically, because Matthew could have chosen any woman to put in here. Like you have Sarah or Rebecca that you could put in this genealogy, but instead he chooses women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. And we're we're learning about these women. He chooses these these different women, all women who are non-Israelites and And he could have connected so many other people, but instead he mentions Canaanites and prostitutes and and Moabites. And and it just, it doesn't make sense. But I could tell you one thing for sure. The readers at this time would see this and say, what is God doing? Why why these women? Like they're going to stand out. And that's what I want to ask today. Why these women? Why are they in here? I think one thing Matthew wants us to see is, that God has been using all types of people to move his plan forward. God will use all types of people to move his plan forward. And today, on verse 6, it says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Who's Uriah's wife? (laughs) The wife of Uriah tells a story of heartbreak. I believe if we were to hear this story today, it's, it's probably something you have seen on Netflix. It's a a drama that I'm sure you've heard of before that's filled with lust and infidelity and it's it's wrapped with shame and suffering and scandal. I mean, it's a story that if you haven't read in the Bible, you've probably watched some version of it. Who is the wife of Uriah? Well, we find out in 2 Samuel 11 who the wife of Uriah is. And the wife of Uriah, it says, is Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. Now, Uriah was one of King David's entrusted military officers. So he was, he was high up in rank. And I'm not going to read through the whole story. It is in 2 Samuel 11, but I am going to give us a little synopsis if you've never heard this story. I remember hearing the story for the first time in college, and I was like, that's in the Bible? <laughs> like, I, I was shocked when I heard this story. But you have a story of David who was out and he's supposed to be at war, but he's, he's out on his roof, and he sees a woman. He sees Bathsheba, who is bathing, and, and he, she catches his attention. And he asks for someone to, to get her to come to him. And so she, she goes to him, and there's infidelity. And, and later Bathsheba comes back, and she says, I'm pregnant. That's a problem because she's the wife of Uriah. <laughs> and Uriah is off at war because it was during a time where war was happening, and he was off fighting. So David's like, okay, I have a great idea. I'm going to bring back Uriah, and I'm going to tell him he could come back. And he brings him back, and he's like, hey, while you're here, you know, go, go be with your wife. But Uriah was an honorable man, and he's like, no, my men are fighting. I'm not going to go in there. And so David's plan does not work out as he wanted to, so he does what anyone else would do, and he murders him. He, he sends him to the front of the line of the army and has Uriah killed. So this is a messy story where all of a sudden now you have adultery that happened, you have a murder that happened, and then David brings in Bathsheba to be his wife, and they have this son, and it's a consequence of the sin, that son dies. Welcome to church. 
Merry Christmas. I mean, this, this story, it, it's messy. And like I mentioned, it's a story that's wrapped with scandal and shame and suffering. But I need you to hear this morning that no matter how, how messy the story, no matter how messy the scandal, no matter how deep the shame, no matter how big the suffering, you could trust that God is making it right. You could trust that you have a God who is making this right. Now, the Bible, I want to be clear, it makes no suggestion that Bathsheba was doing anything wrong or unusual. You could have heard versions of the story of like, well, why was, why was she bathing? Like, she shouldn't have been bathing. Well, I will point out one thing is the only person who was where they shouldn't have been was David. See, because it says, in, even in 1 Samuel, it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David was out on his roof. David remained in Jerusalem. So David was supposed to be at war. This is a woman who's familiar with war because her husband's at war. So she should not have thought that David was even home. If anything, she should have thought, well, David is at war. So I do want to be clear that I don't think Bathsheba was doing something to put herself out there. The Bible does not suggest in any way that she did anything wrong, but rather it appears David was where he shouldn't have been, allowing his eyes to go places they shouldn't have and his heart to follow. See, there's, there's no complicit, like we don't see anywhere in the Bible where it seems like Bathsheba had any blame in this, but it does have blame on David. See, given the times of the culture where she lived, Bathsheba almost certainly did not have a choice but to go. So is this, is this rape that just happened here? Like what, what happened in this story? Is this an assault? I mean, we could only be as clear as the Bible is clear about this, but we know that she didn't have much of a choice either way, and we know that God doesn't approve. When we look at the story of David and Bathsheba, if you've heard it before, I'm sure you've heard it through the lenses of David. I'm sure you've heard some version of, you can make any mistake. I mean, David, the guy, after God's own heart, made this mistake, and there was still redemption. But this morning, I want to encourage you guys to put on the lenses of Bathsheba. To get in the shoes of, of Bathsheba for this moment and, and this story and look at her side of the story, a mistake that was never initiated by her, but invited by David. What do you do when a mistake happens to you that wasn't your fault? It's a mistake that caused her pain, grief, and suffering. The story of Bathsheba shows us God didn't work in spite of sin, but rather he decided to work in the midst of it. So what are you going to do when the consequence of the sin was never your fault in the first place? What do you do when your husband is murdered? What do you do when your child dies? How do you respond? How do you move forward? How do you cope? How do you trust? How can you possibly trust God as a good God when there is so much bad that is happening to you? And that's the question I have for Bathsheba. How is it that you could have possibly trust God? I remember for one of my birthdays, I always said my, my bucket list gift was I want to go skydiving. And so one of my friends bought me a ticket. I opened my birthday card, bought me a ticket, and was like, you're going skydiving. And I was like, oh, dang it. <laughs> I shouldn't have ever told you that was on my bucket list because then I had no choice. Because another fun fact is I am afraid of planes. <laughs> like I really am. And so I was like, why am I going to jump out of one? And the whole time there, I was so scared. The whole drive, I was like, is there any way I could back out on this? It didn't help that one of my best friends was like, I was going to go with you, but I'm too scared, so I'm not going. <laughs> and I was like, 
Okay, cool. So we get there, and the entire time, I, I really am terrified. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And if you've been skydiving, they attach you to someone else. So we're on the plane, and the skydiver instructor who has had thousands of jumps is finally like, okay, I'm going to attach you to me, and we're going to jump out. It was the weirdest thing. The second that I got attached to him, all fear just left. There was a moment of like, okay, great. Like, I, I have the professional with me. I'm good to go. Like, I, there's, there's nothing bad that's going to happen. It was the weird. I was not scared anymore because I was able to surrender my trust to the one I was attached to. I was able to surrender. See, you're only going to surrender to the degree in which you're willing to attach, and you're only going to attach to the degree in which you're willing to trust. And I trusted that this skydiver instructor, he had me, I was good. We see this in John 15 where he's saying, hey, abide in me, attach to me, attach to the true vine. And when you start to attach to him, things shift, they start to change. And I believe that Bathsheba was attached to God. In your life and your walk, the question is, what has your attachment? Because if I were to attach myself to the problem, there's a, I would have just been stuck in fear, but instead I attached myself to the professional who I knew he had me. Well, the, the big thing that I want you to even get today is that when you could trust God is working for you, you could keep walking with him. When you could trust that God is for you, like I know that he is for me, you can keep walking with him. You could keep on being obedient to him. I have four words that I really do believe could change your life if you believe them. I have four words that if you would declare this, if you would believe this with your whole heart, it could change the trajectory of your life. The four words are, I can trust God. I, if, you, if you really believe, I can trust God. If you, if you believe, I can trust God, things will start to change. See, we trust God not by focusing on the pain, but by focusing on the promise. A verse you might have heard a lot is Isaiah 26.3, you will keep in perfect peace whose minds are steadfast. I think we stop there sometimes. You'll keep in perfect peace whose minds are steadfast. So it's like, okay, keep my mind steadfast on you. But it says, because, because they trust in you. That's the second part of the verse. Your mind is going to be focused on where you've put your trust. If you trust in him, then you could keep your mind steadfast on him. See, we don't know too much about Bathsheba, but as the story continues, we notice there's a woman who trusted God, who walked with God. I, I believe she, she trusted him. And I'm going to go through three things of, of promises of God that you could trust. The first one is God will defend where you have been offended. You could trust that God will defend where you have been offended. In 2 Samuel... This story in verse 26, it says, When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her into his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. A couple of verses later in 2 Samuel 12, it said, this is the Lord speaking. It says, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? I want to point out what David did was evil. It was evil. And maybe we're in a spot where Bathsheba couldn't speak for herself, but God spoke for her. In this instance, God did not settle and let this be okay. God brought a prophet to David to say this is wrong. And it's funny because I think that the same character trait that God had of being 
Bathsheba's defender. Later, we're going to see that Bathsheba was a defender to her son. Now, there's some speculations that Proverbs 31 is actually influenced by Bathsheba. Proverbs 31 is a Proverbs written by a king. It says, written by King Lemuel. And it says that they believe that that was one of Solomon's nicknames. And if that was one of Solomon's nicknames, it says that that proverb is inspired by a woman. And one of the verses in that proverb is, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights who are destitute. Speak up, judge fairly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. See, Bathsheba, she's not mentioned by name much in scripture, but she's actually referred to as the wife of Uriah. Even in the genealogies, she's called the wife of Uriah, and this has the effect of distancing her from David's schemes, of distancing her from the evil that he has done and the guilt, because it wasn't okay, and I think some of you in here need to hear, it wasn't okay. Like, maybe something has happened to you, and you just need to hear it's not okay, that it's not right, that it shouldn't have happened. There are ways that some of us have been wronged and we need to hear and believe, even from God's own heart, that it's not okay. See, when you could trust God is working for you, you could keep walking with him. Bathsheba, she reflected this God she trusted and later she becomes her, her son's defender. She ends up becoming the defender of her son when uh, there's uh, one of David's sons is trying to take over the throne in 1 Kings. And Bathsheba comes to David and is like, no, you promised that he's supposed to be the next king. And she stands up for her son. She, she says in 1 Kings 1, she said to him, my Lord, you yourself swore by the Lord your God that Solomon your son is going to be king and he's going to sit at my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king did not know about it. A couple of verse later, the king replies, As surely as the Lord lives, who's delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you. The Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Bathsheba defended Solomon. See, what she did in this time, though, is she reminded the king of the promises he made. What if we started reminding the king of the promises he has made? What if in like the times of conflict and trouble, when things are going wrong, instead of focusing on the problem, what if we went to the purpose or to the person of the promise and said, wait, 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 you promised that this would happen. You promised to be my shield. You promised to be my defender. You promised that you would always be with me. Maybe I think some of us need to start going to the king and reminding him of his promises. And it's not that our king... Our king forgets his promises. I think that a lot of times we forget his promises. And when we forget his promises, we start to drift in different directions and we start to not trust him. The same way I didn't trust my physical therapist because I was like, I know you, you promised that my knee was going to feel better, but it, it's not feeling like it feels better. What do you do when it doesn't feel like things are going better? Some of us are really great at responding to our feelings more than we are at responding to the promises of God. Instead of responding to our faith of God, like, I know that you can do this. God, this hurts, but you promise that you're going to be with me. Someone might have gotten stabbed in the back by a friend. I know it hurts, but God promises he will be with you. Maybe you've been hurt by a coworker, betrayed by a family member. Remind the king of his promises. See, we might be so tempted to defend ourselves, but I found that we make really bad defenders. We can learn from Bathsheba that 
that it just takes an ordinary person having trust in God. I remember even growing up, I, I played soccer, and I was a position what they call forward, striker, right wing. There's lots of different names for it. Essentially, you're on the offense. You play up front. But I'm a little competitive and a little controlling. So sometimes when my defense wasn't doing good, I would come back and I would help them, like just trying to be a good teammate. My coach did not like that. <laughs> and my coach would yell at me and say, Brooke, you can't go back then. There's this one time, you know, a ball comes up and it goes exactly to the place where I'm supposed to be, but I was back playing defense because I was trying to help them and be the defender that I was never made to be in the first place. <laughs> And my coach said, every time you go to that position, every time you go there, you can't fulfill your position. I need you to stay and fulfill your position. I wonder how many times we try to fulfill the position of God. I know I'm guilty of it, of trying to be my defender, of trying to defend myself when someone hurts me or wrongs me. Like, I know I'm very guilty of it, but God says he wants to be our defender. We often take the position of God... And every time we do that, we forfeit our own position. See, trusting he is your defender will enable you to live out your full potential. Some of us need to just trust him. Trust that he's going to defend us. See, some of us are fighting battles that only God can win. And fighting battles that we need to surrender. You could trust the promise God will defend you where you've been defend or offended. Number two, you could trust that God will comfort where you have been afflicted. You could trust that God is going to comfort where you have been afflicted. We can't bypass the affliction of Bathsheba. She was pregnant. She was widowed. Her husband was killed. In verse 27, it says, after the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Sometimes I think we read over this too quickly. She goes to live with the guy who just murdered her husband. I just let that sit in for a second. This is, this is where Bathsheba is. She goes to live in a place where this guy just had her husband murdered. She wasn't his only wife. This isn't like the dream life, the love story that you hoped of. She's the eighth wife that he's had. Welcome to the palace. Like this is, this is the life that Bathsheba is going into right now. So what do you do in your afflictions? Well, I do believe one thing is sure, that God was close to her. Because if we go back to what the Bible says, Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord will save those who's crushed in spirit. I also believe God comforted her. And 2 Samuel said, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. So what the Bible says about mourning is, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Like, what an what a odd thought that in your mourning, you, you actually get comforted. What did Bathsheba do in her affliction? She mourned. And even this morning, I want to ask some of you guys, how do you mourn? How do you grieve when something is wrong, when something has hurt you? How is it that you decide to grieve? Many of us, at least me, we avoid brokenness. Understandably so, some of us, we will mourn by filling up even more things. I'm having a bad day. I just need to turn on a new show. A lot of us mourn like this, and we just fill up our lives. Or you might mourn by filling up your schedule. I just need to be really busy so I could keep my mind off of this. I believe some of you, you need to start mourning with God. See, try to find things 
that don't just comfort you, but actually try to find the comforter himself. I do want, I think some of you need to hear that grief, that tears, that is not a sign of weak faith. It's not a sign of weak faith, which maybe sometimes you believe, well, if, if I mess up, I don't believe God is for me. It is not. It only harms us when we deny our pain. Our pain actually needs his presence. More than anything, we, we need to be in his presence. So what do you do with your pain and your infliction? Well, I, turn, I would encourage you to trust and turn to God because when you trust God is working for you, you could keep walking with him. It's an odd passage in Psalm 119. It says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep to your word. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. What an odd thing that you would say your affliction was a good thing. But if you allow it to turn you to God, God will make something out of it. If you will allow yourself to turn to his word, the only thing that can actually truly comfort you. So what do you do with your afflictions? Where do you take them? It's always tough when, uh, when you're trying to comfort someone and you don't know what to say. So I remember when I had a friend in, in uh, high school who lost someone, someone had passed away, and, I, and I, had, I had no idea how to respond to them. And I remember when I was in college, I ended up having a close friend that passed away, and, and things definitely changed when I met anyone that lost a close friend <laughs> because I, I had grieved differently. I could respond different. It's kind of like when I see someone with a knee injury and I'm like, oh, like I get it. It's like I, I feel it. I need you guys in here to hear that you have a God who feels your pain. Hebrews 4.15 says we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are. And Isaiah says he was a man of, sire, of sorrows acquainted with grief. I mean, we have a God who knows how to comfort us because he knows what it is to suffer. He could comfort us because he knows what it is to have pain and, and that is the God that we need to turn to in our pain. When we are the ones who are grieving, a lot of times people will worry what they should say, but I think another question we should ask is what we should say to ourselves instead of what people should say to us. And my encouragement is for you to say, I can trust God. I can trust God. That that would be the mantra, I can't trust God. Now, this past year, I became a homeowner, which is really exciting. So for Christmas, I was like, I'm going to decorate. Like, I have to decorate my first house, so I wanted to put lights on on the outside. My dad helped me buy them on Black Friday. We bought all the lights we need, and my dad was like, okay, are you going to get one of your guy friends to come help you? And I'm like, no, I'm going to be independent. I'm going to do it myself. And so yesterday, I got the ladder, and I went up on the roof, and I got to the top, and I literally said... I'm starting to wish I asked someone to help me. <laughs> I get to the top of the roof, and I, it's, it was a little steeper than I expected. Like, you know from below when you look at things, you're like, oh, yeah, no problem. But when I got to the top of the roof, I was like, okay, this is a little bit scarier than I expected, anticipated it to be. And so I had to have one of my friends come hold the ladder. And then another of my friends who knew how to use it, and so we had it a little bit more sturdy. And I realized to the degree in which I trusted the ladder was how high I was going to be able to go. <laughs> See, I could only go as high as I actually trusted. And it's the same in our relationship with the Lord as you'll move in the degree of which you trust. And so the application even for today is let trust move you. Let trust move you. It's been a problem since the beginning where Eve did not fully trust that God had her best intentions in mind when he said, hey, don't eat from that tree. 
There was a trust issue, and we've been fighting a trust issue ever since, but today I would encourage you, let trust move you. Let, let your anthem be, I can trust God. This week when you have an unexpected bill and it's Christmas time, I want you to say, I could trust God. I could still trust God even when I'm having financial problems. When a family member hurts you, let trust move you. When a tornado strikes unexpectedly, let trust move you. When you're reminded of heartache and loss during the holidays, let trust move you. You could trust God with your unknowns of your future. You could trust God that he's going to speak to you. Let trust move you. We need to move towards his presence because the Bible tells us that in his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence is fullness of joy. Now, joy doesn't necessarily always take away the pain, but joy does give us hope. See, this joy that we have is actually this joy where it helps us wait with hope, knowing that he's going to comfort us now and one day forever. See, as, as Christians, if you follow Jesus, there is a grieving that happens, but it does happen differently. In 1 Thessalonians, it tells us, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. I need you to hear, church, we have hope. This is what this season's about, is we have hope. And having hope doesn't mean that we don't grieve, but it means we grieve differently. Having hope means that we will grieve with confidence knowing that God himself one day will, will restore, he's going to confirm, and he's going to strengthen and establish you. What are you grieving with this season? I would encourage grieve with God. See, our grief, it acknowledges that things, they're not as they should be. We get that. That things, it's not how they should be. But there is a promise that our hope in the gospel reminds us that grief does not tell the whole story. See, this wasn't the end to Bathsheba's story. She would one day bring in Solomon, who's, you know, told to be the wisest king there was. He was given all of this wisdom, but even greater than him would be one who would be our greatest comforter, and he would be called the Prince of Peace, and that would be Jesus. See, one day in her story, there was going to be someone who was going to come through her genealogy, her lineage. (laughs) See, you could trust God with the promise that he's going to defend you where you've been offended, that he's going to comfort you where you've been afflicted. And the third thing is that God will make right where you have been wronged. God is going to make right where you have been wronged. In 2 Samuel, it says David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went to her and made love. This was after their son had passed away. So she gave birth to another son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, named him Jedidiah. See, Jedidiah means love by the Lord. Solomon's name means peace, and his other name means beloved by Jehovah. In some ways, I believe his name is telling the story, even to Bathsheba, that I'm at peace now because I'm beloved and forgiven by Jehovah. God begins this new plan. Out of all people, out of all wives, God chooses Bathsheba to be the one that he's going to use. There's something different about Bathsheba. She was instrumental in their life. So the question is, is when you have no control of the way you've been wrong, can you trust that God is in control of making it right? When you have no control over the way that you have been wrong, can you trust that God is making it right? I hope your answer is yes, because he is. He's making it right. You could trust him. God will make right where you've been wrong. I could trust this because God may right what we made wrong. 
I could trust this because this is why Jesus came. See, he was wrong, yet he loved us. We were the one who disobeyed. We were the one that were in the wrong, and God still came to make it right because he loved us. He sent Jesus, and Jesus paid the ransom for all of our sins, breaking the power of sin, death, and suffering. And when he returns, he is going to redeem what has been lost. He's going to restore what has been broken. What hope we have, church. See, Bathsheba, she, she suffered the mistakes for someone else's sins, which would one day point to the one that she'd be a part of making, the one who would come and also suffer for the mistake of someone else's sins. And his name is Jesus. Jesus came for us, for our mistakes, suffering for our sins to bring redemption. He knew suffering. He knew what it was going to be. He would one day bear the grief and the redemption for all. He would come to earth. Our Jesus would come here. He was a perfect man, yet treated as a sinner. He knows what it was to be wrong. He knows what it was to have affliction. He was put on a criminal's cross that he did not deserve to go on. He understood what it was to be offended, but he took it. He bore it on himself. He was afflicted for our sake and he hung on a cross and died for us so that we could live, so that we could have life and life abundantly. He was willing to suffer for the mistake of our sins, my sin, your sin. The everything David wasn't for Bathsheba, Jesus was and is for her. Everything David wasn't, Jesus was. Everything he wasn't, Jesus was. Maybe for you, maybe everything your dad wasn't, Jesus can be, and Jesus is. Maybe everything that that best friend wasn't, I want you to know Jesus is. Everything your mother wasn't or a family member wasn't, Jesus is. Everything your job is not, Jesus is. Everything your child isn't, Jesus is. Where do you put your hope? Because Jesus is everything. Every area David failed, Jesus fulfilled. This is big because everyone wanted to make David a hero. You hear about David in the Bible, but there is already a hero. None of us are the real heroes. We all want heroes, but even the greatest heroes are going to let us down. Even the greatest ones, they're going to end up letting us down, but we have a hero of the story, and his name's Jesus. We have one who will never let us down, and his redemption is available for you today. So my unction for you, church, is that today you would trust him. That today you would say those four words, I can trust God. So what I'm do is I want to close like this. If you'll just bow your heads for a second. I could only imagine the pain that's represented in this room, the grief, the suffering. If you've lived, there's some type of pain. You know, Jesus told us that there was going to be pain, that there was going to be suffering, but to take heart because he has overcome. See, maybe some of you, you have to trust Jesus in the pain right now. You've endured some hard pains and, and you need to turn back to him. Maybe some of you have never put your trust in him at all. And today you need to make that decision to trust him. And so I just wanted to give you a second with no distractions, with the Holy Spirit even moving in you right now, speaking to you 
Maybe some of you just need to hear, God is with you. 